Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum with your host, Matt Warhoover. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to PerfWeb 75, Day 3. Thank you for joining us. Today, I am, I'm Tammy Sverasino, your guest host, while Joe Basha is out of the studio. He will not be joining us today, but we will be joined by one of our favorite panelists, Matt Warhoover. He's coming to us live from Nashville, uh, representing a Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Morning, Tammy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us. I understand you've been quite busy over there. Had some uh, busy nights working this week, huh? Yes, we have. We've uh, been quite, uh, a little bit on a, a, a roll uh, this this year. I think, uh, I think yesterday we did our 22nd and 23rd heart transplant of the year. So, oh my it's, goodness. It's, uh, we've, and I think we've done 11 uh, this month already. So it's been quite a busy month. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, you guys just rolling out from last year into the new year and uh, doing great with that. Well, that's just such such great news. Um, well, we thank you again for joining us. We know that you um, <clears throat> have been uh, getting very little sleep and we are glad to have you here. So um, what are you going to be talking about today? Um, you know, I think, you know, we're, almost, we're a little over two years into this uh, COVID pandemic. And uh, really, I, I think from the centers that I've spoken with just uh, locally in Nashville and then regionally, um, some of our ECMO centers, um, you know, people are starting to change their, um, you know, patterns on, on not only who they accept, but how they staff it and, and you know, what some of the boundaries are that they're, that they're willing to do. And so I'm really going to review uh, what we've done at Vanderbilt for the last two two years, and uh, how we've changed as far as uh, you know our overall scope of, of dealing with the the COVID pandemic and the pe uh, people that are um, that are referred to us both externally and uh, the patients that we get internally, and just a lot of the the, the management and decision making on um, who to treat, how to treat, and and what methods that uh, we go about. Uh, making those decisions. Okay, well, that sounds very interesting. I'm sure that's going to be really uh, very useful information for a lot of our viewers. Well, I'll go ahead and turn the floor over to you, and uh, uh, we will let you get started with that. Sounds good. So, uh, Joe asked me to really uh, take a deeper dive in, into looking, um, you know, what have we done as far as resource utilization? And I know this is a, a profusion forum, uh, but th this will be a broad scope of, you know, from a, from a 30,000 foot view of just the whole hospital, uh, you know, mentality of, of how we've had to change our strategy um, and, and how we've evolved over the last 24 months um, with this pandemic. So we'll just jump right in, next slide. So uh, I, I really wanted to start out with a timeline. So. Um, we, we did our, we put our first COVID patient on back in May of 2020. And these are fiscal years uh, that I've got up there. So we put five patients on um, within the first probably uh, 60 days um, of, two, of 2020 uh, between May 2nd and June 30th. And then the next fiscal year, we put 42 on. And um, year to date, uh, we have 34 on for this fiscal year. So you can, as you can see, we, you know, we were a little bit uh, hesitant to start putting these patients on. I believe the pandemic officially started sometime between January and March, depending on where you were in the country. We really didn't see, um, we were prepared for it um, as, as, as a medical center, but we really didn't see, uh, you know, uh, our population really uh, light up with uh, the COVID-19 um, uh, disease process until probably uh, after spring break of 2020, April-ish. Um, and then, you know, that's when it started to uh, kind of peak uh, the first time uh, in Nashville. And uh, uh, more, more importantly, uh, I guess, to the region of Middle Tennessee. Um, but as you can see, um, 
it's not stopping. We're pretty consistent. If not, um, you know, I, I think we will be over uh, probably 42 cases when it comes to fiscal year um, for this next uh, fiscal year. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll probably overtake that number um, by July 1st. Next slide. And so the, the very first thing, um, this, is, uh, this is what we uh, decided to do. Um, this was our first iteration of uh, more or less classifying uh, who, who we would put on ECMO and who we would not. And this was, this was uh, if you want to say, this was our, our, our first trial at this. And there was, I, I can tell you there's many iterations um, that we've gone through but it was more or less of a, a, a living document and kind of, it was kind of a, a fluid document, mm -hmm. but we did make, uh, we did make a hard stand um, twice. And we just said, we need to get this, we not only get it right, but we need to, you know, refocus and, and really get these things down. So this was our first attempt to, to do this. Uh, we first started off with saying that, you know, there are some absolute contraindications and then there were some relative contraindications based on, uh, multiple factors if, if they were, um, uh, if the patient, you know, was prolonged exposure to, you know, uh, to Optiflow or BiPAP, you know, more so than what we would like to see, but, you know, they were perfectly healthy and they fit all the other criteria just because you were an outlier in the, one of the relative contraindications didn't mean that we didn't accept you. Um, but as you can see, we, we, we put a hard line on uh, 60 years old um, as an absolute contraindication, but we did consider people a little bit older than that if they were, you know, really, really active, um, you know, great shape, um, no, no, you know, no, cor no comorbidities. Um, we did do a, a BMI the same way. We tried to restrict it to less than 45, but we did go up to 52 or 53 uh, in those, in some cases. Um, the me mechanical ventilation uh, was seven days. We did go up to 10 days um, in, in the first cohort of patients. Uh, of course, we, we, would, we wouldn't treat anybody that had irreversible neurologic injury. And then if we, uh, if it we had some chronic respiratory issues, um, we, we, didn't, we didn't really find them as candidates for ECMO as, as, as well because your baseline of your respiratory status was already in, in jeopardy. Um, and so we, we, those were, those were pretty solid, uh, and, and, and we, we stuck with those throughout, uh, the relative contraindications, the ICU days, uh, in the beginning, we were pretty stiff on that, on, on not wanting to accept, but as, uh, as patients, you know, became, I would say sicker and, and hospitals started to fill up, um, we, we kind of knew that we had to, uh, extend some of these other criteria, um, on what we were doing. So uh, next slide. And, and so once we sorted them out, um, who we would accept and who we would not accept for ECMO candidates uh, based on the, uh, the contraindications, um, we kind of stratified those patients on, you know, should we, should we put these patients on ECMO or should we actually try to treat them um, in a non-ECMO cohort and see if they progressed you know, with, with conventional therapy or, or even some non-conventional therapy, would it be proning uh, or maximizing ventil uh, ventilator um, settings? And once again, as we gleaned more of this information throughout the process of, of the couple months uh, to the year that we did this initial uh, settings, we found out that actually putting people uh, on max ventilator settings was actually more harmful. It, they were not your typical ARDS patients. Uh, so putting them on max ventilation uh, prior to putting patients on ECMO, it actually, uh, we found out that kind of, it, it hurt our outcomes, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so we were, we were a little bit more inclined to, to pull the trigger, um, and, and we'll get into that more so, but uh, we would pull the trigger on putting them on ECMO more um, readily earlier in the disease process and until, you know, a, a, instead of letting them progress, um, you know, further and further down this uh, stratus and then uh, finally say, well, we don't have any other therapy. We've tried everything. So w this was a learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I guess uh, next slide. And then um, if we also had to think about uh, our resources as far as from a you know as a as a uh, a leader in Middle Tennessee. So mechanical ventilation, uh, we were getting a lot of calls, and um, and so you know patients that were on eight, ten, twelve days on outside hospitals, you know. It took us a while to get that um, more or less idea out that please call us uh, earlier in the med uh, mechanical ventilation days. And, you know, we would, even if we didn't have a bed at the time, we could talk some of the outside hospitals into some of those uh, scenarios that was on the previous slide about proning patients, doing some alternative ventilation strategies um, to, to try to manage them from afar. And then for the patients that would not respond to those, that then you know we, we could um, you know bring them in as a transfer. But we were really um, at, at, at you know some points throughout that first year, we just didn't have any beds, and we were trying to manage from afar some of the, uh, the you know the patients in other hospitals and 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 you know as a collaborative effort, um, you know putting some of the the docs and the and the uh, hospitalists um, in the uh, outside hospital community with our internal team and, and we were doing conference calls, um, you know, almost on a weekly basis, touching base with and, and reviewing all their patients that they had and the ones that they were concerned about that they weren't gonna be able to, to take care of and that they really needed ECMO. And so it was a, almost a, a week to week console with uh, some of our more, um, you know, close partners uh, in Middle Tennessee. Um, next slide. And then, so we, over the year to, uh, I would say 15 months, we developed some, some things that we, we learned and we said, that, you know, the BMI of 52, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to work. Really BMI of 50, uh, you know, we kept pushing that number 45. It, well, this one's 46, 45. This person's age is 61. And, and really we found out that, you know, there were, there were some hard, fast numbers that really, from a uh, from a utilization of resources standpoint, we just um, we, we felt like we weren't doing we weren't doing ourselves a service and we weren't doing the community a service because, as you know, if if you say yes to someone, yes. You're, you're absolutely having to say no to someone else. Yes, uh, and that, that's actually where it was, and we, we just it, it is a tough decision to make. Uh, you know, I, I don't ultimately make those decisions, of course, but I'm in on some of the calls and I can hear it. And, and those are, those are, uh, you know, those are tough calls to take that you say, you know, we, we are not going to be able to take this person because they, we feel that, you know, for X, Y, and Z, it's, it's, they're too far, uh, into the disease process or they've got other more morbidities and, uh, comorbidities. And, uh, we have to be able to, you know, set a line to work because resources aren't endless and uh, whether it be uh, pumps whether it be nursing staff whether it be NPs um, and just you know sometimes you know it was disposables at, at some point um, that you know we there was not a it was not an unlimited supply of resources and so uh, at, on the 19th of October uh, this last year we set some new standards uh, that we, we revised over the, the learning of what was working, what wasn't working over the 15 months. Next slide. And so we, we came up with this priority scoring um, system for the COVID patients. Um, and it really had to do with two, two, two I guess, criteria. It had patient information um, that was a part of the scoring. And then um, we had our, our own hospital uh, information on where we were as an institution. Uh, as far as uh, where our resources were. But uh, we actually put it into a, uh, more or less a, a, a stratified uh, ECMO score. And it, we, we just did a point system. The lower the points, uh, it was a, a better, a, we felt it was a better candidate for okay. uh, our utilization. And, it, you know, this is, um, I'm just going to, before I go through, I don't need to go through all this. We'll touch some highlights, but, um, th this was, this was well, I was, this was well thought out. And, um, in my mind, there, there, there was a lot of, uh, collaboration and a lot of discussion around all these point value. It wasn't just arbitrary. 
Um, we looked, you know, retrospectively at some of our uh, data that we had and some of our patients and some of the success stories. And then, unfortunately, some of our, um, you know, not so successful cases. And um, we kind of said, well, you know, wh why do you think this wasn't a success? And, you know, we, we gave uh, a point value to some things that, um, you know, that, that you say, well, you know, that person should have done okay. Um, and with the, you know, things like acute kidney, um, if you're receiving CRT already, you know, that, that is a, that you already have one organ system that's really already down and providing a second organ system support like ECMO, um, it, it, it really, you're, you're, you're spiraling down already. And so we really looked at some of these things and, uh, the, made a hard cutoff, uh, you know, on, on some contraindications and, but we really weighed heavily on some of the comorbidities that we just said, um, you know, they add up <clears throat> and we, we know where this, we, we know where this is going to go because we've seen it before. And if you don't change your strategy, um, you know, that's, that's the definition of insanity. If you do the same thing, thinking that you're going to get a different outcome, um, without changing things, that's, you're just not setting yourself up for, for success. Mm -hmm. So um, we will, you know, we put a hard no on anybody over 50. We put a hard no on anybody over BMI of, of 50. Uh, we put a hard no on if you've been intubated more than seven days. Um, we, uh, I'm trying to, re I'm trying to recall all all the things that we did say. Uh, if you were aneuric, uh, definitely that was a, a no. So we, we went and put these scores together, and this was, like I said, based on only the patient criteria. And um, so we, we trimmed that and kind of brought in our margins a little bit on who, who we thought the therapy was best suited for, um, and then uh, put it in a score. And any, anybody with a green in that score, uh, this was phase one of, yes, we would do it. And then okay. uh, we would go to the, the second phase, which we're getting ready to talk about, and that's that's where you had to get it. You had to have two check boxes. One, the patient was good, uh, you know, was uh, right uh, for ECMO. But two, was the hospital ready uh, mm -hmm. for adding one more patient? In the yellow, there was a discussion um, between a, 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 there was a discussion of three different physicians uh, based on who was on call that weekend or, or week, and uh, they would have a, a three-person uh, con call discussing anybody that was in the yellow and then anybody that was in the red, it was an absolute no, that there, there was no conversation about that. So next slide. And then this was the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, one more. And then this is the uh, health system information. So this was, uh, this was the, the, the part two, if uh, about, so, when we would get a call from the outside hospital, it would, you know, the very first thing that our house supervisor said, it, this was the lip, this was the, the more or less the litmus test. It was it appropriate for Vanderbilt to be getting that phone call? Are, are we the right center to be getting that call? Um, had they called a closer ECMO center geographically where mm -hmm. the call was coming from? Um, because, you know, resources were thin, beds were thin. And, and so, you know, you, you don't really want to, you know, say this, but you have an obligation to really take care of your community surrounding you. And, right. you know, there's a radius that goes around uh, out of Nashville that goes into Middle T Tennessee, that goes into Kentucky, that goes into northern Alabama, um, you know, uh, you know, north northwestern Georgia. Um, so th those areas we, that, that we, you know, we, we say those are the people that we treat every day. Um, those are the phone calls we should be getting for these patients. And so if we got a call from, um, you know, uh, Kansas, or we got a call from um, Western Arkansas, uh, wh why are we getting that phone call now? And time and time again, it was uh, that they had called the nearest ECMO center and they were full, or they called that nearest ECMO center and they were denied. And so, um, when we were getting the phone call, it, it wasn't usually that uh, it was an inappropriate call. It was that, you know, the, the other centers were doing their due diligence. They were calling the next closest center that, we, you know, that didn't say no. And so uh, I would say a majority of the times, the, you know, it wasn't 
uh, it was the right phone call for us. Now, whether we could take that patient or not was, was different uh, every time, but um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that people were just trying to skip centers. Uh, things, you know, a lot of the times when we were getting these phone calls uh, from centers that we don't typically get calls from, it was because the, the centers nearest them were, were absolutely full. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was the geographic limit. And then, you know, the equipment limit, um, you know, for outside, was there a cardio help or a Centromag available? And would, uh, you know, would we allow to, were we, if we put that next patient on, did we have at least one backup of that particular type of circuit? Uh, at the time, um, prior to uh, October 19th, we had three different types of systems that we were using. We had the SORN, we had the Cardio Help, and we had the uh, Centromags. Um, in the end of October, we added the, the uh, Spectrum pumps to our fleet, and that was really when we said, okay, we need to really you know, uh, retool this, um, this decision-making tree. We have more pumps now, no, but let, that doesn't mean that the floodgate should be open. And that was really, uh, buying more equipment was really, um, uh, really a, a hard, fast, uh, more or less point in our progression of, of why, you know, why we had to come up with this because we, we, we did have seven more pieces of equipment that we could put people on, but that doesn't mean that, you know, all the phone calls you should say yes to now. So we really wanted to drill down and retool this. Um, so equipment was part of that uh, discussion. And then most importantly, um, you know, personnel was, um, not only from the bedside nurses, but from our NP and our APP staff. Um, you know, we, we put some thresholds on what we were willing to do as far as ratios and how thin we were um, and, and just the overall number of patients that we would have in our units. Um, because uh, as, you, as you know, um, as, as ICUs get more and more acutely ill and then chronically ill for these long-term ECMO patients, um, it, it, is, it, is, it can be demoralizing, especially if you're, you know, if you don't get a win from time to time uh, on, a, on a really good story. It seems like a, a, a lot of people remember the, you know, the horror stories or, or the things that uh, the patients that really um, affected us um, emotionally um, that really didn't have the outcomes that we would, of course, like to see. Um, and, and people can, um, you know, people can get a little bit, uh, you know, depressed. You see it. Uh, and, and, you know, you just have to be able to uh, have some wins and focus on some of the wins. And so we just said that, you know, we were not going to take um, more than, you know, six across two of these units. Um, and that's kind of it was not only not only from a personnel, from a numbers, but just a, a mental and, and morale type uh, mm-hmm. uh, atmosphere as well. If we go back to the previous slide. I apologize. Uh, wanted to get back to that. Um, yeah, they, for the for the inclusion, the, the second part of the patient information, like I said, there was two check boxes. One, the patient information had to be checked. And then the, the, the hospital system uh, had to have a check for us to accept that patient. Um, the one thing I did want to uh, point out on this is that the the, the top section in that uh, phase two, the ECMO inclusion criteria. So every every single member um, that would uh, every single patient that would get referred to us, they would actually get a patient advocate. It was whether it be uh, one of our ICU physicians, whether it be one of our NPs, they took the phone call from that uh, from our call center. And they got all the information, and they were the direct contact. And so we had one person, uh, you know, gather all that information, and then they would present it uh, as as kind of, and they would be, you know, they would present it as it was almost like a a case um, in, in a case conference. And all that information, they were the they were the point person from our hospital to that hospital, um, and so there wasn't. Uh, any information that was, um, you know, misunderstood. It, it was very important that we got all that information from one source because some of these, you know, as you get some of these tra- uh, travel, uh, uh, you know, uh, transports, what you get, what you get in the report, um, it's like the telephone game. You you hear right. bits and pieces of it, and by the time you get there, it's a completely different picture. Mm-hmm. And so that I wanted to point out that that's really important. I think. 
that when you when you go to accept one of these patients, that you have the same person taking care of all the information and being the um, being the spokesperson. And it's it's one voice, and it, it's it the information comes from one person. Yeah. And so that I, I wanted to point that out that that's uh, that was one of the uh, most important things that uh, that we actually uh, came up with that said we're not going to have multiple people on point. Um, right. working on transfers. It's one person works on one, one patient uh, mm -hmm. on the transfer. So we can go through the next couple slides. And then uh, finally, we did this priority scoring system. Um, uh, this was, this was we, I think we took this, um, it was, uh, we, did, we did, used Minnesota's uh, oh, and, and Charleston comorbidity index. That's what it was. Okay. And so this is the point system that we used. Um, and it's more of a, a drilled down and there's some links to it. Um, that, and people were a, a little more, um, let's just put it, it, it was a little more black and white. You, it, you took feelings um, as much as you, know, you could mm -hmm. take feelings out of the decision because uh, you know, a lot of lifelike transports they, they, they do the same thing as they don't want to know the background information on, you know, what happened to the patient um, because it can mentally affect your decision making, especially when it comes to transporting patients, you know, and, and that's kind of uh, where mistakes can be made. So this more or less took the uh, feelings out of the decision making of who we we're going to put on and put uh, not put on, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's tough to hear some of the background stories that, you know, people that have four kids under the age of 18. You know, th th those those things, you know, can weigh in on a, a decision. But we were we really um, I think that was the other reason why we had one person get the information and that person just presented the case. They, they just presented facts and they, they didn't delve into, you know, should we take this person or not? They were just there as the spokesperson giving facts. Um, and so you can you can see that uh, the Charleston comorbidity, uh, we did the Minnesota uh, scoring system. There was multiple different scoring systems, but in, uh, emphatically, you know, we ended up with this, um, mm -hmm. uh, and this was kind of our go-to. This is what we currently use right now, um, and we go through all these scores. And at any given time, if if it's in the red, you know, they're kicked. The, it, the process is stopped, and we go. You know, we're, we don't need to move any further. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think that's a, one more slide. And, and and this is this is kind of uh, the scoring system uh, based on that Charles uh, Charleston of you know these are what we go by as far as the scores one two three or four about platelet count uh, liver function uh, where our cardiovascular um, um, status is your renal status and of course uh, uh, the Glasgow uh, Coma score um, we put all this stuff together and um, that, that you get a, you know, you get a, what I want to call a, uh, a unbiased, um, you know, it's black and white, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a hard, hard number and, you know, it's, it's actually a score. And so it doesn't take into personal account, personal feelings or, you know, any other outside source. And really that's, it, it's almost like rationing, but, you know, at the time that's where we're at, that, that's where we were at at some of the peaks of COVID. Right. And so um, this was really, I just wanted to lay the, the groundwork about, uh, you know, where where we started and kind of um, how we progressed. And it started off that it was uh, usually, you know, a small committee and uh, we would get a phone call. We said, yeah, we could do that. You know, mm -hmm. you know, at the beginning, hospital wasn't so full. And, um, you know, eventually it, it was kind of, well, we did that for that patient and this patient seems like they're healthier. Why, why don't we do it for this patient? And with that kind of mentality, when you're looking back and it's, uh, you know, it's really uh, arbitrary and it's a little, it, it's based on feelings and, and um, opinion, um, that's when you kind of can get in the weeds. And then, you know, um, you can even a little bit of infighting uh, between, you know, physicians yes. to say, well, you know, why, would, why, why are we gonna do this again? Or, or you know, this patient seems healthier. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, at that, that's, that's the wrong time to actually have a little bit of, uh, you know, disagreement, um, even on the front end uh, of seeing who gets, um, you know, patient, uh, patient resources. 
So that's that's what I've got. But I think this is more of a discussion uh, than it really is is, is a uh, than a lecture. So right. I'd like to uh, open up and have some discussion about it. Well, thank you, Matt. That was very informative. <clears throat> I think that um, just seeing your progression, you're at such a big institution, you, you've seen a, a lot, probably some of the worst um, that anybody's seen as far as numbers of uh, patients that you had to treat during this whole period. And seeing the evolution of kind of where you started, which was, I think, like a lot of uh, places that were already doing ECMO, right? You um, were taking these patients, <clears throat> doing the best you could, sort of seeing how this was all going to play out because we weren't really sure how effective ECMO was going to be, when we should do it. You know, do we do we wait until it's the last-ditch effort? Do we do it earlier? But then if we do it earlier, um, are we putting patients on that we could have kept um, resources available for a sicker patient that might have come in? You know, we just didn't know. But ending up with this scoring system, I think, is really impressive. It makes a lot of sense to me. All the things you were saying, you probably couldn't see, but I was nodding my head because it's what we saw as well. You know, we we would put a patient on, um, and it kind of depended on, um, you know, we work at multiple facilities, which means we also have um, multiple hospitalists and intensivists that are often making these decisions. And although I'm sure each of them um, were making sound decisions based on their decision processes, it was different. So <clears throat> we might be at one facility and depending on whose week it was at that facility would depend on the kind of patients that got put on ECMO. And um, then, but that's, you know, with these runs lasting so long, that's a lasting effect, you know. That could be a four to six mm -hmm. to, you know, three months um, decision that one person made uh, even after, you know, some of our surgeons were, you know, starting to try to find some guidelines and because uh, we were running out of resources and it would be we're not going to do patients, for example, with BMIs over this amount. Um, but then you got uh, someone who it was their rotation week um, at the hospital. That's the intensivist. And they really want this patient. So they're advocating because that was maybe their patient or they got involved early, you know, with with the transfer. And it really showed um, a lot of differing uh, criteria that was being used, <clears throat> whether or not we were accepting transfers. Same thing. Houston's a big city. So, you know, we serve a lot of people and the, the surrounding areas. But we got calls for transfers all the time. And our group wasn't really involved in whether or not a patient got accepted, but some of these patients would be coming just to our centers because perhaps ECMO wasn't available at their center, and they would come, and they weren't, they were specifically transferred for ECMO, and then we got them, and they either didn't really need ECMO or they were not a good ECMO candidate. But now we have that patient and we own that patient and that patient's now taken up another bed, you know, that we really need for what's in our immediate community. So I think we see, saw a lot of the same struggles on a much smaller scale, but we never evolved into um, a really sophisticated um, way to determine the best way to utilize the resources that we had. And I still think that it's sort of um, gotten quiet here in Houston for us with the um, COVID ECMOs. But if it were to have another surge, we're no better off than we were in the beginning because some of those hard stops we did anyway. And a couple of them, um, might have had a success story, if you will. They came off ECMO and they made it out of the ICU. And um, so then that really makes it hard to say, well, was that a good hard uh, stop or not? Or was that person just a really lucky outlier, you know? And without an, um, any way to really justify who you're picking, it, it seems um, like 
really unfair rationing. So I, I really like the term that you used for that. Um, we do have to protect our resources, but we need to find a way to do it so that it is as um, fair as possible. Um, because uh, I like something that you said. I, I wrote it down. What was it? Yes to someone means no to someone else. I mean, we saw that quite a few times. You know, we, we actually got a good candidate come in, but we didn't have any more machines or we didn't have any more nurses or there weren't, wasn't even an ICU bed, you know. So a, a patient that might have been a really good candidate is now waiting somewhere else for um, a current patient to um, either get better or die, you know. And all yeah, the while... That good yeah, thing that it's getting worse, you know? Right. And and that's actually, that was, you're exactly right. Um, that, 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 that exact example is the reason that we actually said, we, you know, as a group, we have to go to a, a scoring scale yeah. because, you know, at, at some point you have used your last bed, you have used your, uh, your last machine that doesn't have a backup and you know, I don't know if it was Murphy's Law or whatever it was, but as soon as we got to that point, we would get a phone call for someone that was, you know, really ideal, you know, a very young patient, no comorbidities, single organ dysfunction. And, and you look around, and you go, we don't have another machine. Right. We don't have another bed. And, and to the point that, that and that, like I said, I, I didn't, I didn't come up with that. Uh, but that was kind of the, the universal if you will, mission statement internally that when you say yes to the very last person you can say to, you've used your last resource, mm -hmm. you will say no to the next person. And you, you've said no to someone. Uh, so when you do say yes you know, to someone, you say no to the next. And no. um, that, yeah. that's, that's really what caused us to do this is because we, we were time and time again, we were going, you know, this patient that we just got the phone call really needs our help and is a great candidate. And right. we just didn't have the resources to do it. So we, we had to ration it. Right. We even had something that, you know, hit really close to home at one of our hospitals. Um, <clears throat> we were at max capacity. Um, you know, we were real, I think it was around surge two. Um, and, um, we had we had already gotten you know as many extra um, machines that we could, and um, people were still highly motivated. Then you know it was it was starting to to get wear on people uh, the lack of successes and the long long runs and the nurses uh, you know having to manage so many patients at a time, but people were still uh, you know very hopeful that we were we were really doing some good, and we got a phone call of a patient um, of one of our own, if you will. So, uh, you know, it was an immediate family of someone who actually worked in the ICU and it was a good candidate and we didn't have any resources to help someone that was actually in our very close knit, you know, community because we had already utilized them all and they weren't really all great candidates, right? You know, a couple of them at the time, it was one of those that the patients were in crisis and even though they were well past the ventilation or um, time or they were, you know, really high BMIs, already in renal failure, but uh, the emotional factor played in and they got put on ECMO and now Although they are not dying actively, they were languishing and not improving, and you're stuck then, you know? Yep. Um, so we, we, um, we really started trying to push for some kind of way to um, have a look at these patients from a more objective uh, perspective. Um, I think that uh, something else you said about having a single patient advocate assigned to them, I think that's a really great idea because you're right. Um, you know, we've got so many uh, transfers in that uh, we don't typically go pick up the transfers. That's more rare for us. We just receive them. But so many times 
we, you know, we get the information from the intensivist who then got the information from whoever called them from the other facility. And then you get that patient in. And by the time everybody gets together, no one has the same story. And usually what's actually going on with this patient and what their actual criteria um, is it's completely different. You have just bits and pieces. And so it can be difficult to make those decisions, especially when it's in a more urgent type fashion. Uh, you know, the, the patient's not doing well. They're at a place that's not an ECMO center. We're putting them in a, an ambulance and they're coming to you right now. You know, we get the call, we're primed, we're ready to go. And the patient gets there and Maybe they don't need ECMO at all. Maybe they needed some additional um, <clears throat> ventilation strategies and maybe we're able to stabilize them, you know. So we saw a lot of that. Um, I do have some questions. Uh, people are chatting with us on YouTube. So let me just look at some of these questions. So from uh, uh, one of our uh, viewers, um, Medima Rose, let's say, they said, um, I think you've answered this before, but honestly, I can't remember the answer. So how many ECMO beds did you have or do you have um, available? What, what, what's the amount that you reserved to be able to do ECMO? Um, so we didn't, we didn't reserve beds. What we, what we did was we had a total number of machines. So we had, uh, prior to mid of October, we had 13 machines. Okay. Uh, that, and so we, that was, we had 15 machine or uh, we, had, we had 16 machines and we could do 13 ECMO uh, patients because we had three different systems and we needed a backup system right. for each one of those. So we had 16 machines, but we could only put 13 people on. Mm -hmm. And that was across uh, three different units. Yeah. Uh, we, we put people on in the CVICU. We put people on in the uh, medical ICU, and then we had a medical uh, COVID ICU. Um, but remember, those are 13 ECMO patients. That's just not 13 COVID patients. So, you know, that, that encompasses, you know, we were the, the biggest heart transplant center in the right. world. So when well, you're doing heart transplants, that volume, some, you know, it doesn't always work out. And so you have to have, you know, you, you have to have backup on that. So we, we would we would only go down to we, if we had 11 patients on, we wouldn't accept any more because we needed two more circuits for our transplant patients. And so we kind of held a, a, a hard number at 11 until we got those seven um, more machines. Okay. And so uh, at that point, it opened up uh, some more capacity as far as equipment. But in the mm -hmm. beginning, we were it was equipment. Now it's more uh, hospital and personnel, if you will. Gotcha. And that's yeah. why that second phase came in because we knew that we would have the equipment, but once again, you know, is that the right thing to do um, as far as from a morale standpoint? Mm -hmm. um, because once again, like you said, once you put them on, you're committed. You are committed. And, and, and you know, you can have nursing staff available for days one, two, and three, but you look later on in the week and you go, we're not gonna have enough nurses that are, are, are trained or qualified you know, to sit with these patients. So you, you, we, we had to look at the personnel standpoint. Absolutely. You know, you bring up a good point and um, <clears throat> about reserving, you know, you're still running a heart program, uh, you're running a transplant, but even in our community hospitals, we were still, you know, doing hearts. We had a few times that, you know, there weren't beds available. And so we kind of went quiet for a week or two, but then they would ramp right back up as soon as we had a few beds available. And we were having to, um, you know, ha keep having that discussion we need to reserve, uh, you know, a, a machine, at least one machine so that we have an exit strategy if we get into trouble. At one point, we, uh, at one of our uh, busier facilities, you know, we had, um, I believe it was six on ECMO and they were all COVID. And we had used our last ECMO machine at that facility. Six was our max, but we had an extra <clears throat> heart-lung machines, and so we had said, well, that's our backup, I guess, because our heart-lung machines run the same kind of uh, centrifugal pump for our ECMO. And then we got a patient that uh, was not COVID and could not come off bypass, and we had to convert to ECMO using one of the heart-lung machines, and then we're down to 
a heart lung machine. So, you know, you really do have to draw a hard line because now we only had, you know, a machine for heart surgery with nothing, uh, you know, as a backup, not even another bypass pump, you know. So uh, I do think that <clears throat> you have to look at, although it can be difficult, you know, it's emotional. We're talking about people's lives, but we also have to talk about, uh, or think about rather, um, protecting the, the, the patients that are going to come through that we haven't seen yet, you know. Um, another question from uh, Medima is, how are your ECMO outcomes varied by the different variants? Do you have any, um, <clears throat> any uh, either anecdotal or um, data uh, available on that? Yeah, so we just say, we just reviewed um, our data. So it, 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 are you talking, I guess I don't understand the question other than are you talking about per, when it comes to our outcomes per device, of our three systems, we don't see any differences right. in that. But as far as before and after, uh, like when we made the hard stop, I think that what they were asking is, uh, you know, like uh, whether it was uh, the initial uh, variant or Delta oh. or um, Omicron or you know whatever. Right. Did you what were the did you see different outcomes based on the variant of COVID? Um, I, I will say that I, I don't. I don't think that we, we haven't stratified that data yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I would just anecdotally say, um, we are getting uh, better results. Um, so it, we were closer to fifty percent uh, survival. We're up mm -hmm. to sixty-five percent survival now. So over as we've talked about, you know, we, we've broken into uh, quarters, mm -hmm. and then we got an overall number. So in the beginning, we weren't um, as successful as uh, we are now. And, but I think, I think it has to do with, A, that our selection criteria has gotten yes. a little bit trimmed in, but also the ventilation strategy, uh, I, I think I pointed that out. We were trying to push people and say that, you know, um, we'll, we'll try to do more aggressive ventilation strategy before we put them on ECMO. Mm -hmm. And it seemed as though that, um, the, the lungs were being beat up prior to going on COVID or going on ECMO. Yeah. And so we, we pulled the trigger earlier on mm -hmm. patients, but we also, you know, tightened up our criteria. And so, of course, I think that that provided uh, art, whether you want to say artificial, but it was our numbers have gotten better. And yeah. so I, I would say that that's it's probably due to those two factors. We're putting more people on early and we're actually being a little more uh uh, tight with our selection criteria. Well, that makes perfect sense. And we kind of had the reverse um, and not because we've changed our criteria really. I mean, there was some a uh, little bit of uh, relaxing of the criteria, I guess you could say, after the first surge, simply because um, we actually were pretty successful in our community hospitals with the first surge, we were um, quicker to put people on. And so we had, you know, <clears throat> somewhere around 50% um, uh, survive and, and come off ECMO. And then that sort of, you know, everything kind of died down. We thought that was the end of it. And then the second surge came. And so, uh, uh, you know, People were quick to want to put these patients on ECMO, and we put maybe some larger patients, maybe people that had been on ventilation uh, longer, and um, <clears throat> then that didn't go so well. You know, we are, our success rates dropped, and then in the third surge, <clears throat> we, we found that pe we, they were delaying um, putting on ECMO because now they're doing kind of the, what you did in the, the beginning where you were trying to do these other things. Is there anything else that we can do and uh, waiting too long to put them on ECMO? So really, I think having the criteria, um, you know, we have a, a longer period of time. So we're hoping that at 
our facilities that they're really going to start looking at well, what worked here and what didn't work, and uh, maybe come up with something. Um, I'm sure it won't be uh, as sophisticated as what you came up with, um, but maybe it'll be similar. And um, we're hoping that when something like this happens again, uh, we'll have a little bit better uh, knowledge on how to uh, really manage all of this and uh, do just the very best we can. So thank you for those questions. I think they were, they were great. Well, <clears throat> Matt, do you, um, uh, what's going on as far as your COVID ECMOs? Just an update for everyone since we're kind of talking about it. Are, are y'all still uh, staying pretty full with those over there? You know, um, it, it seems like we get the, we, we were down to two and then, you know, all of a sudden we'll bump up to six or seven. I think we're down to two again. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just seems as though uh, we get these you know, waves of peaks and troughs. I don't think it's, um, I say, I don't think it's ever gonna go away. Uh, it, eventually, I, I think it will, but it just seems like it's been a very long time. Just when you thought we were, you know, oh, we may not, we, we may get down to, you know, one or zero of COVID patients, you know, you, you see a couple more uh, trickle mm -hmm. in and then a couple more lead to, you know, uh, six or seven again. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's just the cyclic um, of the holidays. Yes. We, uh, you know, as, as more people, you know, interact, I think, uh, you know, that that's what happens, but that's, well, that's where we're at now. We're, we're in a valley right now. Um, and, and we're, uh, have zero patients. Um, you know, I hate to even say that out loud because we've gotten so close to that so many times and then the exact same thing would happen to us we would have a peak and um you know we would start seeing those patients again i'm interested to see what's going to happen now that <clears throat> i've been reading that a lot of uh places are relaxing their their mask requirements and so um, you know, now that we're kind of out of the holidays and we're, we're coming out of winter, uh, you know, and that's typically when all of our flus and things like that really peak. I wonder what's going to happen now that, you know, the, the mask uh, mandates are being relaxed some and if that's going to affect us or maybe we're just kind of finding a, a new normal um, where we're going to have them around, but maybe not in an overwhelming number. What do you see yeah, there? I I, I, I would agree. I, I think it's just going to be, uh, it's, a, it's the new norm. I think we will always, um, I, like I said, I hate to use the word always, but yeah. I don't think that, uh, I, I think we, we will continue to see um, one or two um, come in from time to time. And like mm -hmm. I said, I think around bigger gatherings and, you know, yeah. I think it's just going to, you, you'll get these spikes in it, but uh I, I just don't know when or where it ends, but I'm hopeful that one of these uh, one of these seasons that all of a sudden it just goes away and um, it's something that uh, we look back on and go, well, what did we learn from it? And exactly. we'll be having discussions like this about what did we learn from that experience and that we can do better in the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I know you probably uh, would like to catch up on some sleep or you're probably due at work, <laughs> but we I really am. appreciate it. You're due at work. Well, we really appreciate yeah. you taking the time uh, to uh, share all of this with us. We, uh, I know our viewers really look forward to the monthly check-in from Vanderbilt. So we thank yeah. you and um, we hope everyone has a wonderful day. And uh, Matt, why don't you close us out? Okay. Well, Tammy, thanks again for having me on. Uh, the Vanderbilt faculty really uh, enjoy this monthly uh, discussion and uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll see Joe next next month. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. We do have another program tomorrow at 3 o'clock Central Time, and we will have Joe Basha back in the studio, and we will have our monthly guest, John Ingram, with his knowledge nuggets on septic shock. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Thanks, Tammy.